Section 15 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Morning 2, Part 1. 2. Otto. One Sunday, when Jean Christophe had been invited by his music director to dine at the little country house which Tobias Pfeiffer owned, an hour's journey from the town, he took the Rhine steamboat. On deck he sat next to a boy about his own age, who eagerly made room for him. Jean Christophe paid no attention, but after a moment, feeling that his neighbor had never taken his eyes off him, he turned and looked at him. He was a fair boy, with round pink cheeks, with his hair parted on one side, and a shade of down on his lip. He looked frankly what he was, a hobbledehoy, though he made great efforts to seem grown up. He was dressed with ostentatious care, flannel suit, light gloves, white shoes, and a pale blue tie, and he carried a little stick in his hand. He looked at Jean Christophe out of the corner of his eye without turning his head, with his neck stiff like a hen. And when Jean Christophe looked at him, he blushed up to his ears, took a newspaper from his pocket, and pretended to be absorbed in it, and to look important over it. But a few minutes later he dashed to pick up Jean Christophe's hat, which had fallen. Jean Christophe, surprised at such politeness, looked once more at the boy and once more he blushed. Jean Christophe thanked him curtly, for he did not like such obsequious eagerness, and he hated to be fussed with. All the same, he was flattered by it. Soon it passed from his thoughts. His attention was occupied by the view. It was long since he had been able to escape from the town, and so he had keen pleasure in the wind that beat against his face, in the sound of the water against the boat, in the great stretch of water and the changing spectacle presented by the banks, bluffs gray and dull, willow trees half under water, pale vines, legendary rocks, towns crowned with Gothic towers and factory chimneys belching black smoke, and, as he was in ecstasy over it all, his neighbor, in a choking voice, timidly imparted a few historic facts concerning the ruins that they saw, cleverly restored and covered with ivy. He seemed to be lecturing to himself. Jean Christophe, roused to interest, plied him with questions. The other replied eagerly, glad to display his knowledge, and with every sentence he addressed himself directly to Jean Christophe, calling him Herr Hoff Violinist. "'You know me, then?' said Jean Christophe. "'Oh, yes!' said the boy, with a simple admiration that tickled Jean Christophe's vanity. They talked. The boy had often seen Jean Christophe at concerts, and his imagination had been touched by everything that he had heard about him. He did not say so to Jean Christophe, but Jean Christophe felt it, and was pleasantly surprised by it. He was not used to being spoken to in this tone of eager respect. He went on questioning his neighbor about the history of the country through which they were passing, 
The other set out all the knowledge that he had, and Jean Christophe admired his learning. But that was only the peg on which their conversation hung. What interested them was the making of each other's acquaintance. They dared not frankly approach the subject. They returned to it again and again with awkward questions. Finally they plunged, and Jean-Christophe learned that his new friend was called Otto Diener, and was the son of a rich merchant in the town. It appeared naturally that they had friends in common, and little by little their tongues were loosed. They were talking eagerly when the boat arrived at the town at which Jean-Christophe was to get out. Otto got out, too. That surprised them, and Jean-Christophe proposed that they should take a walk together until dinner-time. They struck out across the fields. Jean-Christophe had taken Otto's arm familiarly and was telling him his plans as if he had known him from his birth. He had been so much deprived of the society of children of his own age that he found an inexpressible joy in being with this boy, so learned and well brought up, who was in sympathy with him. Time passed, and Jean-Christophe took no count of it. Diener, proud of the confidence which the young musician showed him, dared not point out that the dinner hour had rung. At last he thought that he must remind him of it, but Jean-Christophe, who had begun the ascent of a hill in the woods, declared that they must go to the top, and when they reached it, he lay down on the grass as though he meant to spend the day there. After a quarter of an hour, Diener, seeing that he seemed to have no intention of moving, hazarded again. "'And your dinner?' Jean-Christophe, lying at full length, with his hands behind his head, said quietly, Then he looked at Otto, saw his scared look, and began to laugh. "'It is too good here,' he explained. "'I shan't go. Let them wait for me.' He half rose. "'Are you in a hurry?' no do you know what we'll do we'll dine together i know of an inn diener would have had many objections to make not that any one was waiting for him but because it was hard for him to come to any sudden decision whatever it might be he was methodical and needed to be prepared beforehand but jean christophe's question was put in such a tone as allowed of no refusal he let himself be dragged off and they began to talk again. At the inn their eagerness died down. Both were occupied with the question as to who should give the dinner, and each within himself made it a point of honor to give it. Diener because he was the richer, Jean-Christophe because he was the poorer. They made no direct reference to the matter, but Diener made great efforts to assert his right by the tone of authority which he tried to take as he asked for the menu. Jean-Christophe understood what he was at and turned the tables on him by ordering other dishes of a rare kind. He wanted to show that he was as much at his ease as anybody, and when Diener tried again by endeavoring to take upon himself the choice of wine, Jean-Christophe crushed him with a look and ordered a bottle of one of the most expensive vintages they had in the inn. When they found themselves seated before a considerable repast, they were abashed by it. They could find nothing to say, ate mincingly, and were awkward and constrained in their movements. They became conscious suddenly that they were strangers, and they watched each other. They made vain efforts to revive the conversation. It dropped immediately. Their first half-hour was a time of fearful boredom. 
Fortunately, the meat and drink soon had an effect on them, and they looked at each other more confidently. Jean-Christophe especially, who was not used to such good things, became extraordinarily loquacious. He told of the difficulties of his life, and Otto, breaking through his reserve, confessed that he also was not happy. He was weak and timid, and his schoolfellows put upon him. They laughed at him, and could not forgive him for despising their vulgar manners. They played all sorts of tricks on him. Jean-Christophe clenched his fists and said they had better not try it in his presence. Otto also was misunderstood by his family. Jean-Christophe knew the unhappiness of that, and they commiserated each other on their common misfortunes. Diener's parents wanted him to become a merchant and to step into his father's place, but he wanted to be a poet. He would be a poet, even though he had to fly the town, like Schiller, and brave poverty. His father's fortune would all come to him, and it was considerable. He confessed blushingly that he had already written verses on the sadness of life, but he could not bring himself to recite them, in spite of Jean-Christophe's entreaties. But in the end he did give two or three of them, dithering with emotion. Jean-Christophe thought them admirable. They exchanged plans. Later on they would work together. They would write dramas and song cycles. They admired each other. Besides his reputation as a musician, Jean-Christophe's strength and bold ways made an impression on Otto, and Jean-Christophe was sensible of Otto's elegance and distinguished manners. Everything in this world is relative, and of his ease of manner, that ease of manner which he looked and longed for. Made drowsy by their meal, with their elbows on the table, they talked and listened to each other with softness in their eyes. The afternoon drew on. They had to go. Otto made a last attempt to procure the bill, but Jean-Christophe nailed him to his seat with an angry look, which made it impossible for him to insist. Jean-Christophe was only uneasy on one point, that he might be asked for more than he had. He would have given his watch and everything that he had about him rather than admit it to Otto but he was not called on to go so far. He had to spend on the dinner almost the whole of his month's money. They went down the hill again. The shades of evening were beginning to fall over the pine woods. Their tops were still bathed in rosy light. They swung slowly with a surging sound. The carpet of purple pine needles deadened to the sound of their footsteps. They said no word, Jean-Christophe felt a strange, sweet sadness welling through his heart. He was happy. He wished to talk, but was weighed down with his sweet sorrow. He stopped for a moment, and so did Otto. All was silence. Flies buzzed high above them in a ray of sunlight. A rotten branch fell. Jean-Christophe took Otto's hand, and in a trembling voice said, "'Will you be my friend?' Otto murmured, Yes. They shook hands, their hearts beat. They dared hardly look at each other. After a moment they walked on. They were a few paces away from each other, and they dared say no more until they were out of the woods. They were fearful of each other, and of their strange emotion. They walked very fast, and never stopped until they had issued from the shadow of the trees. Then they took courage again and joined hands. They marveled at the limpid evening falling, 
and they talked disconnectedly. On the boat, sitting at the bows in the brilliant twilight, they tried to talk of trivial matters, but they gave no heed to what they were saying. They were lost in their own happiness and weariness. They felt no need to talk, or to hold hands, or even to look at each other. They were near each other. When they were near their journey's end, they agreed to meet again on the following Sunday. Jean Christophe took Otto to his door. Under the light of the gas, they timidly smiled and murmured au revoir. They were glad to part. So wearied were they by the tension at which they had been living for those hours, and by the pain it cost them to break the silence with a single word. Jean Christophe returned alone in the night. His heart was singing. I have a friend. I have a friend. He saw nothing. He heard nothing. He thought of nothing else. He was very sleepy, and fell asleep as soon as he reached his room. But he was awakened twice or thrice during the night, as by some fixed idea. He repeated, I have a friend, and went to sleep again at once. Next morning it seemed to be all a dream. To test the reality of it, he tried to recall the smallest details of the day. He was absorbed by this occupation while he was giving his lessons, and even during the afternoon he was so absent during the orchestra rehearsal that when he left he could hardly remember what he had been playing. When he returned home he found a letter waiting for him. He had no need to ask himself whence it came. He ran and shut himself up in his room to read it. It was written on pale blue paper in a labored, long, uncertain hand, with very correct flourishes. Dear Herr Jean Christophe, dare I say, honored friend? I am thinking much of our doings yesterday, and I do thank you tremendously for your kindness to me. I am so grateful for all that you have done, and for your kind words, and the delightful walk, and the excellent dinner. I am only worried that you should have spent so much money on it. What a lovely day! Do you not think there was something providential in that strange meeting? It seems to me that it was fate decreed that we should meet. How glad I shall be to see you again on Sunday! I hope you will not have had too much unpleasantness for having missed the Hof Music Director's dinner. I should be so sorry if you had any trouble because of me. Dear Herr Jean Christophe, I am always your very devoted servant and friend, Otto Diener. P.S. On Sunday, please do not call for me at home. It would be better, if you will, for us to meet at the Schlossgarten. Jean Christophe read the letter with tears in his eyes. He kissed it. He laughed aloud. He jumped about on his bed. Then he ran to the table and took pen in hand to reply at once. He could not wait a moment. But he was not used to writing. He could not express what was swelling in his heart. He dug into the paper with his pen and blackened his fingers with ink. He stamped impatiently. At last, by dint of putting out his tongue and making five or six drafts, he succeeded in writing in malformed letters, which flew out in all directions and with terrific mistakes in spelling. My soul! How dare you speak of gratitude, because I love you! Have I not told you how sad I was and lonely before I knew you? Your friendship is the greatest of blessings. Yesterday I was happy, happy, for the first time in my life, 
I weep for joy as I read your letter. Yes, my beloved, there is no doubt that it was fate brought us together. Fate wishes that we should be friends to do great things. Friends, the lovely word. Can it be that at last I have a friend? Oh, you will never leave me? You will be faithful to me? Always, always. How beautiful it will be to grow up together, to work together, to bring together I, my musical whimsies, and all the crazy things that go chasing through my mind. You, your intelligence and amazing learning. How much you know. I have never met a man so clever as you. There are moments when I am uneasy. I seem to be unworthy of your friendship. You are so noble and so accomplished, and I am so grateful to you for loving so coarse a creature as myself. But no, I have just said, let there be no talk of gratitude. In friendship there is no obligation nor benefaction. I would not accept any benefaction. We are equal since we love. How impatient I am to see you. I will not call for you at home, since you do not wish it. Although, to tell the truth, I do not understand all these precautions. But you are the wiser. You are surely right. One word only. No more talk of money. I hate money. The word and the thing itself. If I am not rich, I am yet rich enough to give to my friend, and it is my joy to give all I can for him. Would not you do the same? And if I needed it, would you not be the first to give me all your fortune? But that shall never be. I have sound fists and a sound head, and I shall always be able to earn the bread that I eat. Till Sunday. Dear God, a whole week without seeing you, and for two days I have not seen you. How have I been able to live so long without you? The conductor tried to grumble, but do not bother about it any more than I do. What are others to me? I care nothing what they think or what they may ever think of me. Only you matter. Love me well, my soul. Love me as I love you. I cannot tell you how much I love you. I am yours, 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 from the tips of my fingers to the apple of my eye. Yours always, Jean-Christophe. Jean-Christophe was devoured with impatience for the rest of the week. He would go out of his way and make long turns to pass by Otto's house. Not that he counted on seeing him, but the sight of the house was enough to make him grow pale and red with emotion. On the Thursday he could bear it no longer and sent a second letter even more high-flown than the first. Otto answered it sentimentally. Sunday came at length, and Otto was punctually at the meeting-place. But Jean-Christophe had been there for an hour, waiting impatiently for the walk. He began to imagine dreadfully that Otto would not come. He trembled lest Otto should be ill, for he did not suppose for a moment that Otto might break his word. He whispered over and over again, Dear God, let him come, let him come. And he struck at the pebbles in the avenue with his stick, saying to himself that if he missed three times, Otto would not come, but if he hit them, Otto would appear at once. In spite of his care and the easiness of the test, he had just missed three times when he saw Otto coming at his easy, deliberate pace. For Otto was above all things correct, even when he was most moved. Jean-Christophe ran to him, and with his throat dry wished him, "'Good day! 
Otto replied, Good day, and they found that they had nothing more to say to each other except that the weather was fine, and that it was five or six minutes past ten, or it might be ten past, because the castle clock was always slow. They went to the station, and went by rail to a neighboring place, which was a favorite excursion from the town. On the way they exchanged not more than ten words. They tried to make up for it by eloquent looks, but they were no more successful. In vain did they try to tell each other what friends they were. Their eyes would say nothing at all. They were just play-acting. Jean-Christophe saw that and was humiliated. He did not understand how he could not express or even feel all that had filled his heart an hour before. Otto did not, perhaps, so exactly take stock of their failure, because he was less sincere, and examined himself with more circumspection. But he was just as disappointed. The truth is that the boys had, during their week of separation, blown out their feelings to such a diapason that it was impossible for them to keep them actually at that pitch, and when they met again their first impression must of necessity be false. They had to break away from it, but they could not bring themselves to agree to it. All day they wandered in the country without ever breaking through the awkwardness and constraint that were upon them. It was a holiday. The inns and woods were filled with a rabble of excursionists, little bourgeois families who made a great noise and ate everywhere. That added to their ill-humor. They attributed to the poor people the impossibility of again finding the carelessness of their first walk. But they talked. They took great pains to find subjects of conversation. They were afraid of finding that they had nothing to say to each other. Otto displayed his school learning. Jean-Christophe entered into technical explanations of musical compositions and violin playing. They oppressed each other. They crushed each other by talking and they never stopped talking, trembling lest they should, for then there opened before them abysses of silence which horrified them. Otto came near to weeping, and Jean-Christophe was near leaving him and running away as hard as he could. He was so bored and ashamed. Only an hour before they had to take the train again did they thaw. In the depths of the woods a dog was barking. He was hunting on his own account. Jean-Christophe proposed that they should hide by his path to try and see his quarry. They ran into the midst of the thicket. The dog came near them, and then went away again. They went to right and left, went forward and doubled. The barking grew louder. The dog was choking with impatience in his lust for slaughter. He came near once more. Jean-Christophe and Otto, lying on the dead leaves in the rut of a path, waited and held their breath. The barking stopped. The dog had lost the scent. They heard his yap once again in the distance. Then silence came upon the woods. Not a sound, only the mysterious hum of millions of creatures, insects, and creeping things, moving unceasingly, destroying the forest, the measured breathing of death which never stops. The boys listened. They did not stir. Just when they got up, disappointed, and said, It is all over. He will not come. A little hare plunged out of the thicket. He came straight upon them. They saw him at the same moment, and gave a cry of joy. 
the hare turned in his tracks and jumped aside they saw him dash into the brushwood head over heels the stirring of the rumpled leaves vanished away like a ripple on the face of waters although they were sorry for having cried out the adventure filled them with joy they rocked with laughter as they thought of the hare's terrified leap and jean christophe imitated it grotesquely otto did the same then they chased each other otto was the hare jean christophe the dog they plunged through woods and meadows dashing through hedges and leaping ditches a peasant shouted at them because they had rushed over a field of rye they did not stop to hear him jean christophe imitated the hoarse barking of the dog to such perfection that otto laughed until he cried at last they rolled down a slope shouting like mad things when they could not utter another sound they sat up and looked at each other with tears of laughter in their eyes they were quite happy and pleased with themselves they were no longer trying to play the heroic friend they were frankly what they were two boys they came back arm in arm singing senseless songs and yet when they were on the point of returning to the town they thought they had better resume their pose and under the last tree of the woods they carved their initials intertwined but then good temper had the better of their sentimentality and in the train they shouted with laughter whenever they looked at each other they parted assuring each other that they had had a hugely delightful colossal ensuttend day and that conviction gained with them when they were alone once more end of section fifteen